Like always, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Paul planted a church in a hurry during abject persecution. Paul spoke about God's rapture and about God's rapture being before God's wrath. But they were seeing the wrath of man against God, not God against men. Now, recognize that. That the church of the Thessalonians was planted in great affliction. Let me give you an example in his first letter. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6, he said, You became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction. First <clears throat> Thessalonians 2 Thessalonians 2.2, Paul says about himself, But after we had suffered before and were spitefully treated in Philippi, as you know, we were bold in our God to speak to you the gospel of God in much affliction. Paul preached the gospel in Thessalonica in much affliction. They received the word in much affliction and conflict. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, as he speaks about them being a model church, he says, You became imitators of the churches of God which are in Judea, in Christ Jesus, for you also suffered the same things from your own countrymen, just as they did from the Judeans. No doubt, they were still being persecuted. In chapter 3, as Paul gives testimony about his experience with them, he says this in verse 1, Therefore, when we could no longer endure it, we thought it'd be good to be left in Athens alone, and send Timothy, our brother and minister of God, and our fellow laborer in the gospel of Christ, to establish you and encourage you concerning your faith that no one should be shaken by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we were appointed to this. For in fact, we told you when we were with you that we would suffer tribulation just as it happened and just as you know. Therefore, when he sent them, he wanted to make sure that Satan hadn't tempted them away because of their persecutions. Let me lay all that out. Paul had been abused, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, but Paul arrives really battered from Philippi when he gets to Thessalonica. When he gets there, he preaches the gospel to them in much affliction. They receive the gospel in that affliction, in that conflict, and then they themselves are persecuted for it. And he taught them, I want to warn you, you're going to be persecuted for your faith. Know that. And then after he had left because he was there for a very short time and then was chased out himself, well, then Paul sends Timothy to make sure that they hadn't been driven away by these persecutions. He wanted to make sure that the enemy hadn't somehow used this as an opportunity to back them off of it. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, by the way, Paul says this when he said about them as a church, they turned from these foolish idols to serve the living and true God and, when, and to wait for his son. And they says, to wait for his son from heaven. This is verse 10 of 1 whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So he had already established this with the Thessalonian church, that there will be a day when all of your persecution will end. But that day may not be until you leave this earth or until the Lord comes back, which could be at any moment. So what happened is, is they knew that. Now understand, the church is still being persecuted there. And because of that, they're really going through a crisis of faith now. Even though Paul had established it in persecution, even though they had received the gospel in persecution, and then Paul reinforced the fact that they would be persecuted for their faith, 
now that Paul has left, and then he sent Timothy, and they were still in the, on the right track somewhere after that, and it's only been months, is sort of the idea here. Assumedly, Paul is in Corinth as he writes this. Somewhere in all of this now, the people, someone has gotten in, and what they've said is, this is the tribulation. And if this is the tribulation, you clearly missed the rapture. Now, the reason they believe they missed the rapture is because they were convinced of what Paul had said in 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and that Jesus delivers us from the wrath to come. They knew that God was coming with wrath, and they knew that they would be delivered prior to that point. That was what they believed. So now that they're being persecuted horribly and things are getting worse, somewhere down the line, somebody steps in and says, oh, well, you missed it. This persecution is the wrath. But here's the problem, and understand this. The wrath was the wrath of man against God. It was not the wrath of God against man. The wrath, when God comes during the tribulation, it will be the wrath of God against a Christ-rejecting world. And he's going to point that out here. So what you have is, you have a church, first of all, that's being misdirected. They're being misdirected because they actually believe they're in the tribulation. Because they're really being worked hard. Now here's the difference between us and them. They had no Bible to refer to. Well, I mean, they had the Old Testament, but they hadn't the things that we have. They couldn't turn to this letter until Paul had written it, if you think of it. And so understand, we can refer to these things and go, it's as clear as day for us, it's right in front of us. But for them, they didn't have it. Now, in the simplest sense in all of this, um, as they believe that the rapture was imminent, and they believe they missed it because this persecution was happening, there was another group of people that were there that basically didn't believe that. But they also abused the idea of a rapture by thinking, well, if the Lord's going to come back, I'm really not going to do anything until he does. So they actually stopped working. They stopped doing it, and that's basically chapter 3. So in the end of it all, Paul addresses it this way. If you have an understanding that the rapture happens before this tribulation, well, then let me show you that the tribulation hasn't happened yet, and let me show you what that looks like, so that you know that you obviously couldn't have missed it and it couldn't be happening to you now. So that's kind of the whole purpose behind this letter. Three very short chapters in regards to that. So, <clears throat> are you ready? Chapter one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. By the way, it seems the last time you'll see the three of them together like that, the last time you see the three of them together in Acts, and that is in Corinth. One of the reasons why it's believed he wrote this from Corinth. To the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then verses 3 through 8 is a single sentence. Paul really knows how to drag a sentence on to make sure that he defines everything he's talking about. We are bound to thank God always for you, brethren, as it is fitting because your faith grows exceedingly, and the love of every one of you all abounds toward each other. I remind you, Paul is consistently bringing out that these are the two things he's looking for. Faith that is demonstrated in action and love that is being demonstrated among the believers. He said that in 1 Thessalonians 1.3 that convinced him that the church was a group of believers still in that sense. Then when Timothy returned back after being sent in 1 Thessalonians 3.6 that was his report. He brought him good news of your faith and of your love was the point of that. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.8 he told them to put on the breastplate of faith and love. Now, so verse 4, so that we ourselves boast of you among the churches of God for your patience and faith and all the persecutions and tribulations 
that you endure. Paul is clearly aware of the fact that they're still suffering and being persecuted, which is manifest evidence of the righteous judgment of God, so that you may be counted worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you also suffer. Reiterating. Since it is a righteous thing with God to repay with tribulation those who trouble you and give you who are troubled rest with us when the Lord Jesus is reeled from heaven with his mighty angels. Now, there's something we call this the law of reciprocity. Reciprocity. Oh, that's usually an easier word to say than tonight. Now, the idea of it is, is returning in like kind. Do you remember the story in Esther? In the story of Esther, there was an antagonist, his name is Haman. And Haman builds gallows to kill Mordecai and his family, if you will, and he winds up being hung on them himself. If you remember, there are those who accuse Daniel and have him thrown in the lion's den. Well, as you're aware, Daniel sort of hits the bottom. And those, that whole night, they're sitting out there, he's sitting there with the kitties. And once Daniel is removed... The, those that accused him were thrown in the lion's den. And they had been getting good whiffs of you know, raw Daniel all night, and they weren't able to eat anything. And what we read is, is that those that were thrown in, they didn't even get to hit the ground. Man, the, the lions were already that hungry. They ate them on the way down, kind of like you see with porpoises when they see the flying fish. And again, the whole idea of it is this, that there are those that are troubling you. And, I, and I mean, let's just be honest. We are not in that place here. I mean, this isn't a place where we are receiving this kind of abject persecution. Nobody's being kicked out of, you know, being kicked out of their family and being chased and running for their life and getting beat up because they believe in Jesus. But these guys were. And after a while, when you keep getting beat up for Jesus, you start to wonder where God is in it. Because the natural assumption is, isn't he going to come to my rescue and not allow this to happen to me? And what he says is, there is a day that that's coming. But the day that that's coming, God is not going to punish you. Why in the world would he do that? He is going to repay those who have troubled you with their trouble. They'll get it back, don't worry. That's one of the ways you could be sure this isn't the tribulation. Because if we're going to just be honest... You're the ones who are getting it and they're not. Now what he's going to tell us ultimately is that the persecution and the trouble we experience, it's all going to be temporary because it's now. Their persecution and tribulation, if you will, is going to be forever. And for that reason, God would tell us we should be praying for these people, even if they're doing this to us. Well, notice what it says in regards to God's response. When Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels is when he's going to give us that rest and those who trouble us trouble. In flaming fire, verse 8, taking vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, notice who's being punished. This is one of those places where I do have to develop a little of the grammar because it tells us that God is taking vengeance on those who don't know him. Now, if they're ignorant that he exists, why would God punish them? Because it's actually not in that verb tense. That's the important part of this. It is in the perfect, active participle. Perfect means they've made a choice once and for all. Active means they've made the choice. 
They have made the choice not to know him. So God is offering a relationship with them, and they are refusing that relationship. They were refusing to know him. God is not punishing somebody who doesn't know he exists. God is punishing somebody who not only refuses to know him, but then also, we read, will not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Present, active, participle. These are people who are making a conscious choice. I don't want to hear about it. Oh, I believe that there's no real God. Well, let me talk to you, but I'm not interested in hearing. I don't even want to know. Interesting, the word for know here is not the word to know by experience, but rather even to know by being taught. In other words, don't even talk to me about them. I don't want to even hear. And you know people like that. They think that they've got a solid case, but they will not allow you to press it on it. I don't even want to talk to you about it. But you want to know what real punishment looks like? Look at verse 9. These shall be punished with everlasting destruction from. Don't miss that word. It doesn't say they'll be punished with everlasting destruction in. But the thing that really is everlasting in this is what they're actually driven from. And what is it? The presence of the Lord and the glory of his power. That's what they didn't want to know. They didn't want to know God. And therefore, instead, it tells us that they would not obey the gospel. Remember, that's the whole idea that God paid your bill. He took the price of your guilt on his shoulders when he died on the cross, rose again on the third day to give you new life. And they're like, I have no interest. Notice it doesn't just say that they're not willing to understand that information. They will not obey that information. Because the gospel, and note that, that the gospel forces you to make a choice to obey it or not. And that's key. And this isn't just that they ask for you to agree, but to obey. That's very different. And we live in a culture here where we could smile and nod at just about anything. People can talk to us about nonsense. It's a very Western European thing to do. We'll go, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. I think you're a lunar, but yes, okay, you're a nutter, uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And just because you know that if you kind of get into it with them, the conversation is going to go a lot, a lot longer. So let's just smile, nod, agree, and walk away so we can get out of this as quick as possible. And he goes, but understand, the gospel forces a choice. And the choice is, will you let him be Lord of your life? Not just Savior, but Lord. And that requires obedience. If he's your Lord, then he has the right to make the call. This is why, by the way, God makes really clear, if somebody says they're a Christian, but they are actually choosing these particular lifestyles, instead, they become their own gods, you realize Jesus really isn't Lord of their life if this is what they're making a choice of, because Jesus said you can't do that. That doesn't mean they're challenged to struggle with it, where the idea is they know what's wrong and they're seeking to repent, but where they're like, I don't care, this is just who I am, and God's just going to have to accept me that way. God's like, well, I'm the Lord, and you need to accept me that way. So, they will be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes in that day to be glorified in his saints and to be admired among those who believe because our testimony among you was believed. This is a day when Jesus will be glorified in his saints and admired among believers. Therefore, we always pray for you that God would count you worthy of his calling. Now please recognize throughout scripture God has made really clear that your calling will involve persecution. 
Peter says in 2, 1 Peter 2.21, that to this we were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that we should follow in his steps. Paul told Timothy at the end of his life in first, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy 3.12, that all, desire, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. It tells us in Philippians when Paul writes to them, remember how he was chased out of there, in essence, escorted out, really. In Philippians 1.29, it says that it has been granted on behalf of Christ not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Because you understand that's part of your calling is you are going to suffer for Jesus. And I'll be honest, one of the reasons is that the only true test of a commitment is in temptation and challenge, if we're going to be honest. Temptation says that you are so committed you'll say no. Challenge says you are so committed you won't move. And that's the important thing. Now, please hear me in this. If we were going to go and play a sport, let's go with one that's a bit of contact like rugby. And I knew that the other team wasn't playing fair. And my job is to win. We're going to win this. And I put you in knowing you're probably going to get smacked around a bit. Would it be a compliment for me to send you in there? In my mindset and where I've come from, it is a great compliment. It's one of two things. Either I really hate you and I just want you to get beat up. If that were the case, I wouldn't. If I have the coach, I wouldn't even have you on the team if I hated you. Let's just be honest. Why would I want someone on the team I hate? But if I really believed you had what it took to handle that kind of thing, it would be a tremendous assertion of my confidence in you. And what's amazing is the Western world here says, if you could just whine long enough, somebody else will get up and fix it for you. Let's be honest, that's kind of the way we live right now. And if we can blog about it long enough, maybe we can pick it a little bit. Maybe someone will actually fix something for us that we should actually learn to handle. Listen to this. In Acts chapter 4 and 5, Peter and John and the others were challenged to shut up about the name of Jesus. They could still have their little meanings. They could still play their little Christian games. But they could not share Jesus' name. You probably get that. You know, it's okay for you to be a Christian. Just don't talk, talk to other people about it. And they left and were, were rearrested because it didn't stop them. And they said, didn't we tell you to do this? Didn't we tell you to be quiet about the name of Jesus? And you were determined to make us guilty of the blood of this guy's man, or the man of this man's blood. Interesting, because they were. And then they beat him. I mean, Gamaliel stands up. He's the president of the Sanhedrin. He stands up and he goes, have you ever considered this might be about God? That this actually may be of God? Then he says, so this is what I recommend. Leave them alone. And if this really is of God, you really can't fight it anyways. Now, there is this history of these other guys, Judas and Thutis. They had their own thing. But once the leader died, the thing fizzled out. Because if it's of man, it's going to fizzle out. But if it's of God, you don't want to be fighting that. So this is my advice. Leave them alone. And they all agree. And then they beat him up. I don't know how that's leaving him alone. <laughs> Sounds like a dad talking to his two sons. Leave each other alone. And then they beat each other up. We were leaving each other alone. Well, that's kind of the idea the crazy part about it was not that they get beat up and that they were, even though they agreed they should leave them alone, it was the response from the disciples. This is what it says. 
It says, when they left there, this is 541, Acts 541. They departed from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer shame for his name. Could you imagine if that's, and I mean, let's face it, as a coach right now, if I will have thought of, you know, assistant coach to the chief coach, our Christ. Where is that teaching? Not go be a giant jerk for Jesus and then get beat up. But when somebody really does bother you simply because you believe in Jesus and they try to shame you for it, it is an honor because the great coach has seen fit to put you in a position where he's confident you won't back down. And you're like, wow, but the thing is, we're in a world where we think that everyone owes us whatever is necessary for us to be comfortable. And if it's out of my reach, you need to bring it closer. And if it's hard for me to get to, you need to make it easier. That's where we live. And I have a right for you to do that to me or for me. And then we bring that into our Christianity and God's like, that is not how this plays out. Imagine Jesus doing that. And so the reason I say that is, is when Paul is addressing these people here in Thessalonica, the rest of the known people getting churches that were getting these letters, they were also dealing with the same thing. But the difference was, is people were bringing in the rapture and telling them that they missed it and therefore they're being persecuted as a result of it. And that becomes the problem here. Now, so it says at the end of all of that, by the way, the end of chapter 1, Therefore we pray always for you that God will count you worthy, that our God will count you worthy of his calling, and fulfill all the good pleasure of his goodness and the work of faith with power, that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you, and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Chapter 2. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him. Those are two very different things, I remind you. The coming of the Lord was going to be the coming of vengeance. And therefore, he has to put this and in there and are being gathered together to him. That was the rapture that was prior. He goes, these are the two things you've been debating over. Not one which one happens, but you're convinced that the, that the Lord's rapture hadn't heard, hadn't happened. I'm sorry, sorry, had happened, and you missed it because you're convinced that the Lord has already come to sort of perform his, his wrath. Notice he separates those two. If the Lord had come and it, was the, and it was the same time as the rapture, he could have put this as one thing, but he separates the two. He goes, look, it, I do not want you to be shaken. Right, like that. Or troubled, either by spirit, or word, or letter, or iPad. <laughs> as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Now, we could put it this way. <clears throat> if... People are starting to buy New Year's decorations. The uh, things that you blow and they kind of uncurl and usually you just blow them at people's faces because that's sort of funny, I guess. The poppers and the streamers and all of the noisemakers that come with it. Well, you have to know if they're buying those, Boxing Day is even closer. And if Boxing Day is even closer... And then someone says, fool, New Year's Eve has already happened. 
you'd have had to have been convinced that Boxing Day has already come. Because that was before it. And he goes, look it. If I can prove to you that New Year's Eve hasn't happened, then you can, then we can at least deal with that fact. So you know that you didn't miss Boxing Day because the other one had already happened. So he goes, let's address that issue. So he goes, look it. You have been concerned that the day of Christ had come. Notice what he says. There were three different ways, or four, if you will, that they could have been told. One was by spirit. He goes, this is, by the way, a very common way that false doctrine can be transmitted. A spirit can be some form of spiritual experience. <coughs> a spirit can be an angel. Because he says he makes his angels flames of fire, his spirits flames of fire. And there are, for instance big cults right now that are founded on the idea that they that some guy wound up talking to an angel. Matter of fact, the, there's an entire religion of people blowing themselves up, if you will, that comes from that, or a guy that said he talked to an angel as well. Then there's that in regards to word. Now that can be by some form of rumor, and that tends to happen a lot. Or something like a letter where actually someone actually said it was from Paul when it wasn't. It is amazing today people who will not read the Bible, but they're, they're intrigued by the Gospel of Barnabas or Timothy. These other books that were clearly disqualified because they weren't actually books of the Bible. Matter of fact, most of them weren't even written at the same time period. The materials that were used were not only uh, not of the time period, but they weren't even indigenous to the area where they said it came from. It'd be like me giving you something on printer paper and actually telling you it was something I pulled up from Egypt 3,000 years ago. You're like, hmm, I wouldn't expect this kind of bubble ink. I wouldn't expect this kind of paper. And the language is a little different too, by the way. You know, where are those kind of really funky bird things and the guy with the claw head and all that stuff that, you know, you see when the Egyptians were writing 3,000 years ago. And the reason I say that is, is that simply like, well, that's a letter. And if that's a letter, then clearly it must be true. Unless it's the Bible, of course. He goes, I don't care where it comes from. You need to know this. If they've told you that the day of Christ has already come, don't believe them. Now, he's going to tell us that certain things have to happen for that. But there's even a part of the church in Mass that actually says, we are in the tribulation right now, or in the millennial reign of Christ, is actually what they'll tell you. And I think that's interesting. And what they try to do is they try to make all of this happen at the destruction of the temple in AD 70. There's a whole lot of problems with it. But notice what he says in this. Let no one deceive you by any means. For that day, the day of Christ, when he comes, I remind you, to be admired by those who believe in him and to take vengeance. I remind you the one to give those who trouble you trouble. They go, that day is coming. And he goes, that day will not come unless first the falling of away. If the falling away comes first, we have here. Now, the word for falling away is the word apostasia, from which we get the word apostasy. Apo, by the way, means out of. Stasia, like histamine, means to stand, like an antihistamine, means to stand against. So apostasia, in its simplest sense, means to stand out. Now, that can happen in one of two ways. There can be a standout that's a negative standing out, and that's the term that is normally ascribed here, and the idea of a great falling away. 
In other words, the believers, there will be a tremendous amount of backsliding. In other words, the church itself will render itself impotent because of its lack of reliance on the living God and his tools. Or there's another way, and that's that they would stand out by being raptured. It's arguable, but most common conservative scholars all agree that it's the idea that the church would fall away. The issue is, he says, you should expect this and get God's MO in this, you guys. The idea is quite simple. God had a time where Israel was supposed to be the mission witness, and they weren't. They had secluded themselves to their own thing and become irrelevant and now non-engaging. So God says, it's time to raise up a second. And he raised up the church. And there will be a day when the church itself will render itself impotent in the same manner. Like we see in the book of Revelation, as we go through the seven churches, it ends with a church that is lukewarm, neither hot nor cold. Now let me ask you, when you see the church in mass today, do you see a church that is transforming, impacting the world around, or a church that's huddling in little corners? especially in our country here. When you realize so much of it, even what looks like they can call a revival, tends to be often a gathering of believers that isn't necessarily impacting the world around them. Now, I'm not trying to criticize as much as I am trying to challenge myself. We need to be different than that. But understand, to do that is not only going to be opposite of the culture that we live in, it's going to be opposite of the Christian culture that we sit in. Because so much of that's going to be like, oh, come on, stop that. You're making waves. And you know that the moment someone starts criticizing somebody preaching the gospel somewhere. I can't believe that person's on the street corner doing that. Or, you know, somebody tried to hand me a track and I looked at them kind of cross. You think, well, what are you doing? And he says, look, you need to know one of the reasons why the Antichrist can't just show up when the church is vibrant is because he'll never get a foothold that way. The one thing that gets in the way of that is a church that's changing its community, influencing its community, impacting its community. Because when that happens and the enemy starts stepping up, they're like, I don't want to hear that. But when the church is hungry for the things of the world, this guy's going to be able to step in and the church will embrace him. Now, you're probably aware, maybe you're not, that the uh, Anglican church here in this country has just had a meeting this last week trying to decide whether or not it should have an official ceremony for people who do gender transition. And they've come to the conclusion they should. They're going to have an official church ceremony so that when you're born one gender and you decide to become another, that they can have one going, hey, welcome. We just want to kind of welcome you as whatever you are now. That's where the church is. Of course, the church has been backing off on marriage and divorce for the last 60, 70 years well, here even more so. The whole idea of this started with that. And and so when we start talking about purity, we can't even start at a base level of family. And then we're like, well, we can say we disagree with this practice or this practice. Well, we need to take the whole thing and say, this is what Christ said, and all standards need to be upheld. We can't just pick and choose the ones we don't like. And the reason I say that is, is that there's going to be a day, would this day look like the kind of day where the church in its simplest sense, for the most part, is actually apostasy, has, has been apostatized? Because it seems very apostate to me. That doesn't mean we can't sing songs. That doesn't mean we can't have meetings. And it doesn't mean we can't have spiritual experiences, but that doesn't mean that we're actually having a broken heart over our own sin before God and a broken heart for the lost. And he goes, I want you to realize 
And we're going to see here how that plays out. That the day that the Lord comes to get vengeance will be a day, by the way, where the church, for the most part, really isn't in any way conscious of the idea that he's coming anymore. He's going to show up and they're like, oh my goodness, that's actually real? That's like truth? And it's going to be quite shocking. And it says, and the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition. The Lord is not going to come back in judgment and vengeance until the Antichrist raises his head. Now, interesting for what it's worth, he's called the son of perdition here. And the only other person that's been called that, Jesus called, and that was Judas Iscariot. Now, the only person who actually actually calls him the Antichrist is John, for what it's worth. And says, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God and or that is, excuse me, that is worshipped, so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now, that tells me something. That when the Lord does come back in vengeance, a temple needs to be here. A temple needs to be here because he's going to set, the Antichrist is going to set himself up in that temple to present himself to be the only thing that's allowed to be worshipped. So, I'm going to hand you a handful of verses quickly and we'll get through the rest of our text. But I challenge you to do this on your own and see. The two classic places where you see the heart of Satan are in Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. And in those, what you'll find is he's got a serious issue of wanting to make sure he is supreme over everything. So should it surprise us that his figurehead, if you will, the Antichrist, is going to do the same. Demanding to be over everything. Classic example, Isaiah 14, 13, and Ezekiel 28, 2. Now, in Daniel, he actually spends time telling us about the way that this looks. And he gives us this specific time called three and a half years. He tells us in Daniel 7, 25, that this one shall speak pompous words against the Most High, persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law, and the saints will be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. A time, times, and half a time. Three and a half years. It says in two chapters later in Daniel 9.27 that he will confirm a covenant, the Antichrist, with many for one, we read it as week, the word is Shiva, it means seven, for one seven period. But in the middle of that time, the middle of that week, that seven-year period, he will bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And on the wing of abominations shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation, which is determined, is poured out on the desolate. Now, he's going to get into a covenant or contract for seven years. As he gets into the contract, in the dead middle of it, he's going to break that contract. Seven years, what's half of seven years? Three and a half. The same time that the saints will be given into the hand of the Antichrist. Three and a half years. It says this in the book of Revelation, that the false Christ and the false prophet, it says, he was given a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months. How long is 42 months? Three and a half years. Same as time and times and a half a time. It says that God actually has his two witnesses that come and they prophesy 
1,260 days. Anyone want to guess how long that is? Three and a half years. It tells us that when he does, that the, that the Jewish people, represented as a woman in Revelation chapter 12, fled into the wilderness where a place was prepared by God that they should feed her 1,260 days. How long is that? Three and a half years. So this is what we get. The Antichrist gets into a covenant with the people. As he does, that covenant is for seven years. But in the middle of that seven years, he's going to break that covenant, stand in the temple of God, and demand to be the only thing worshipped, and then it gets really ugly for everyone else. The Jewish people run for their lives. They're protected for those three and a half years. The church is being persecuted like crazy for those three and a half years. And then the Lord comes back and destroys them. Now, ultimately comes back, reigns a thousand years, and then destroys them. It tells us this in Daniel 12, 11, that the time of the daily sacrifice is taken away and the abomination of, set, of uh, desolation is set up. There shall be, and he gives us a particular time there as well, 1,290 days. When you see the abomination of desolation spoken by Daniel the prophet, Jesus speaks of in Matthew 24:15 and Mark 13, 14. Now, what do you think this is? I mean, this is a simple thing to guess. He's going to get into a covenant with a group of people for seven years. Halfway in that time, he's going to set himself up in the temple. What do you think the covenant's over? My guess is over the building of the temple. Because that's the one thing Israel can't do right now. Because on top of there happens to be already, so it's sort of claimed property by the waqf. That's the group, that's the Muslim antiquities department. How in the world is he going to solve this problem? Interestingly enough, according to Ezekiel 42.20, when it says that the temple was measured on all sides, it says that there was a wall. He separated the four sides and it had a wall all around 400 cubits long and 500 cubits wide. I'm sorry, 500 cubits long and wide to separate the holy areas from the common. Ezekiel says that what he's going to do is there's going to be a wall set up that separates one from the other. It sounds to me like ultimately what's going to happen is he's going to allow the temple to be built. And there's an argument over the place called the Dome of the Spirits, not the Dome of the Rock where the big gold cap is right now, but a place, by the way, that they actually saw as a place that's so spooky to the Muslim that they won't set foot in it. That's a little gazebo, but it tends to be as you actually follow the line from the, from the uh, gate beautiful, the Eastern gate to the Mount of Olives, you'll find it actually is the place where the Holy of Holies would have stood. And all he's going to do is actually have something built there and put a wall in between the two. Are you going to say something? It kind of, well, can you clarify? Yes. So that it's not... Um, leaving hanging, but you already said this just previously. You said for three and a half years the church is going to be heavily persecuted, but if the rapture is happening before, how does there? How are there saints? Because it doesn't call them the church here. Well, you said the church is going to be heavily. Okay, thank you. Well, let me say this. One more thing on this, and then I'll point that out. Thank you. In Revelation 11, too, it says that when you're talking about the temple, leave out, leave, uh, see, leave out the court which is outside the temple. Don't measure it. For it has been given to the Gentiles, and they will tread it, they will tread the holy city underfoot for forty two months. How long is forty two months? Three. Three and a half years. So this is what we have. And then we'll put it all together and kind of put it into how this plays out. <clears throat> There's a time when the Lord is going to come back and rescue his own. 
the Lord coming for us and us being gathered to him, which he taught us in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. When that happens, the very thing, and we'll see that here with our next verses, that has been interfering with the enemy's agenda will be removed. And with that, what will happen then is the church will be absent of a witness for a period of time. As that happens, though, the Lord starts to raise up witnesses, the two witnesses that we know of as uh, that we see here in the book of Revelation 11. But also then there are this 144,000 Jewish evangelists that span the earth. And as that happens, a bunch of other people start getting saved. It is those people who will be persecuted during the tribulation, not the church that was raptured. We've already been removed. As a matter of fact, once the church is raptured, you do not actually read the term church anymore. Because after that, it's just simply saints. Because the church in mass has been removed for what it's worth. I hope that sort of answers the question. Now, I've given you a lot of verses. But again, and I know I've gone quickly, the whole idea of it is to give us this idea. And this is what it looks like. That there is this time where the Lord's going to gather us to him. First Thessalonians 4. And it says, we will forever, therefore, always be with the Lord. And that should encourage us. That's our being gathered to him. But there's also a day that we see in Joel 2 called the day of the Lord. A day when the Lord takes vengeance. Clearly, that's what he's been speaking of here. Because he told us in chapter 1, it's a righteous thing for God to repay tribulation for those who trouble you. And to give those who are troubled, you who are troubled, rest. Now, if the Lord comes back and just performs vengeance, I'm not too sure how that's us getting rest. But when Jesus spoke to the church of Philippi, I'm sorry, not Philippi, Philadelphia, where is my mind? He says, because you have kept my command to persevere, I will keep you from the hour of tribulation that is going to come upon the entire earth. Jesus said, I'm already going to pull you from that so you don't have to worry about that. So why isn't the Antichrist come yet? And how come Hitler wasn't the Antichrist? Well, one thing's for sure. One thing Hitler did not do was set himself up at the temple declaring to be the only thing to be worshipped. What about Nero? Didn't Nero try something like that? Well, Nero did try something like that, but he wasn't actually able to do that. And one of the reasons is because he never got there to do it in the first place. Well, what about Antiochus Epiphanes? He's somebody who actually desecrated the temple. Well, here's the problem with that, is that that happened before Jesus came, and Jesus said it was still coming. It couldn't have been that. Because if it was that, Jesus would have said, just like it already happened, but it didn't. The only thing that's, that can honestly be, the only thing we can conclude is it hasn't happened yet. But this is what he tells us. The church will become impotent. One way or another, it will no longer be an influence on the world around us. Now, that doesn't mean individual Christians can't, but the church in mass is not an impacting factor anymore. However, it's supposed to be. We are actually supposed to be the ones in the way. Now, there's this particular phrase, po Sham, that is used in the idea of, it literally means a little here, a lot later, or more later. And the idea is, is that there are certain things that are, in essence, telltale clues of what you should expect in the coming attractions, if you will. Hitler, I believe, Nero, I believe, Antiochus Epiphanes, I believe, were actually, in essence, little examples of a very big thing later. It's like being in, a, being in a windstorm and going, that was a hurricane. They're like, oh no, the hurricane season hasn't come yet. This is just a hint of that. You know, Our rain that hit yesterday, remember that? If you were around for that? 
brought people into the into our cafe, which was really fun to share Jesus with. It came down hard. People were like, oh, it's the rainy season, and you're like, the rainy season. This is just a hint of it. That's coming later. The reason I say that is, is that he's, that though those things have happened, they are nothing compared to the end of the world. And clearly, the end of the world hasn't happened because we're still in it. Right? <laughs> I just want to make sure we're all there, right? Now, by the way, this is not new information for the Thessalonians. Look at what it says in verse 5. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And now you know what is restraining. Katecho. It literally means to hold against. Present active participle. What is actually intentionally holding back the right in the, um, in the agenda of the enemy, of the Antichrist? That he may be revealed in his own time. The mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he's taken out of the way. Now, who in the world could be taken out of the way? Well, the church certainly could be taken away, but whoever it is is obstructing the Antichrist from getting his thing done. Some would say, well, that's clearly the Holy Spirit. I'd say, well, yes and no. Literally, by the way, takes himself out. It doesn't, and it, because it actually is in the active tense for what it's worth. So it isn't just like he is, somebody grabbed him and removed him. The Holy Spirit as a world-changing factor in the church will no longer be here in such a sense, but transforming human beings, well, certainly people are going to get saved. A lot of people are going to get saved during the tribulation. So clearly the Holy Spirit has to be at work because he's the one who convicts the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. The church in mass, almost always called a she, is supposed to be the one that's the stick in the mud, but it will clearly be removed. But whatever it is, whatever way you want to bend on that, in the end, the Antichrist is ready. Well, I should say it this way, because John says, even though you know the Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have come. I remind you in chapter 1 he said that there were those who would not know God, but rather they would rather delight in lawlessness. And this is the man of lawlessness. Keep that in mind. There was a world out there that says, don't you dare tell me what to do. I'll decide my own right and wrong. And that is perfect ushering. By the way, it does tell us in that time we'll be in a cashless society and you actually won't be able to buy or sell without a mark. Now that's been considered a whole lot of things ever in the past, but it's a cut or a, a mark on the skin is traditionally what the word means. I've never seen a generation more open to tattoos than the one we're in right now. And have we ever had a situation where we could actually globally have a cashless society like we do now? How long do you think it would take to enact that? They just did a survey. Did you see it in the news? Where it said that the majority of, I think it was something like 78% of the Brits that they interviewed said that we'll be in a cashless society within the next five years for what it's worth. Now, this Antichrist has to come from a revived Roman Empire, which, by the way, you're probably aware of the fact that's Europe. He has to arise from Europe, and Europe has to be a single force. That, by the way, is one of the reasons why England leaving or the UK leaving the, uh, the European Union doesn't seem to bother a lot of Christians. Because they're like, the European Union is the closest thing we have to a revived Roman Empire right now. I mean, definitely we don't see anything coming out of Italy anytime right now. 
But there's because it's the revived Roman Empire, that's why some want to call it the Pope. But it seems to be it's going to be a whole lot more than that. Well, with that in mind, he says, don't you realize, I already told you this. This is not new information for them, but someone's come in and lied to them, and because of that, they've bit the hook on it. But he goes, here's the deal, you guys. That the Antichrist is coming, and the Lord isn't going to cause the end of the world till that guy shows up. So you can't say the end of the world is happening because all of that hasn't happened yet. And if all of that hasn't happened yet, then you certainly aren't in the tribulation. And if you aren't in the tribulation, then the Lord is still coming for you just like you've already known. I've already taught you this. The Lord's coming. And if the Lord's coming, stop thinking that things have already happened that have disqualified you. Rather, get your heart ready and right for this. Because this is a good time to get out there and let the church be the impacting force we're supposed to be. That's the idea. Then it says, when he who restrains, be that the church of the Holy Spirit or the church working through the Holy Spirit, verse 8, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. Now, believe it or not, we're almost done because the last chapter reads very quickly through. But hear me in this. We went from the Antichrist setting himself up during that tribulation. Remember, seven-year period in the middle of it, he stands in the temple and says, I'm the only thing you can worship. And then the great tribulation that lasts three and a half years, where it really gets ugly. Then the Lord reigns for a thousand years. Satan is, in, in essence, in prison. Then he's released. So this a thousand years, he just jumps right over that. He's like, the Antichrist is revealed. Then there's this battle. But notice the battle is not like WWE or whatever it is. You know, where it's like, Satan comes out, Jesus with all he's got. Oh, he's got the chair. And oh, Jesus is down. Oh, no, what's he going to do? Is he going to call for an angel? Oh, wait a minute, he's getting up. Eight, nine, oh, he's up. Oh, my goodness, I don't believe it. Oh, my, it's a pile driver. Oh, Satan's walking around stunned. Oh, you know, it's not like that. It's like this. Satan's like, oh, I'm bad. I'm really bad. And people are like, who's able to fight him? And then the Lord goes, if I come to save the day, and boom, it's all over. It says he'll destroy with the brightness of his coming. There's no battle. What that means is Satan had a chance to run around the ring, play his kind of, you know, his, you know, his hardcore music for a moment. So it's like, blah, blah, blah. and he's like, yeah. And then Jesus is like, boom, and the whole thing's over. He never even got in the ring. Now, that's what real Christian doctrine teaches about the Antichrist. Christians individually, we don't stand a chance. But the Lord, on the other hand, the enemy doesn't stand a chance against him. Now, greater is he in us. That's why we don't pick a fight with him ourselves. We let the Lord do our battling. Because he's the one who is invincible. And he is the undefeated heavyweight champion of the universe. So the coming of the lawless one will be in according to the workings of Satan. With all power, signs, and lying wonders. That's why signs and wonders cannot be proof. Because Satan himself will do signs with all power and with lying wonders. And the unrighteous deception among those who perish. Why did they perish? Because they did not, literally would not receive, take to themselves, take with the hand the love of the truth. Now, not receive, I remind you, means that they had to forcibly not take it. It was being thrown in their lap, and they had to forcibly reject. That's why it's not its not just they didn't take. They wouldn't receive. They didn't take with the hand what was put in it, that they might be saved. For this reason, God will send them a strong delusion that they should believe the lie, 
If they won't believe the truth, they'll believe anything, that they all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in right righteousness. But, but we are bound to give thanks to God always for you, brethren, beloved of the Lord, because God from the beginning chose you for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth, to which he called you by our gospel for the obtaining of the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which you were taught, whether by word or by epistle. Now, may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and our God and Father, who has loved us and given us everlasting consolation and good hope by grace, comfort your hearts and establish you in every good word and work. Now, I remind you, God never promised you a comfortable life, but he did promise to be your comfort in this life. Now, he has addressed the fact, he goes, by chapter 2, you should be concluded, we are not in the tribulation and the Lord's still coming to rapture his people. So stop freaking out. So there's only one thing left to deal with. Those who aren't doing anything, because they actually do believe the rapture is happening, but they're not doing anything to impact the world in, in the time in between. Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified. Notice he goes, I want us to be effective until the Lord comes. So would you please pray that that would happen just as it is with you and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men for not all have faith, but the Lord is faithful who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. Now, may the Lord direct our hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. But we command you, brethren, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Lord Jesus Christ, that you withdraw from every brother who walks disorderly, and not according to the tradition in which you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow us. For we were not disorderly among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread free of charge, but worked with labor and toil night and day. Not that we would be a burden to any of you, I'm sorry, that we might not be a burden to any of you, because we do not, not because we do not have authority, but to make ourselves an example of how you should follow us. For even when we were with you, we commanded you this, if anyone will not or literally cannot, or sorry, verses cannot work, neither shall he eat. He's not saying if you can't work, you can't eat. He's saying if you will not, if you will not work, you don't eat. Now the whole point obviously is, there are those who are like, well, the Lord's coming back, so why do anything? Why occupy? Why be about God's business if he's just going to come and get us anyways? And his response to that is, hey, if you're not going to work, you should need. And by the way, hunger, a hungry belly is a fantastic motivator for getting you to work. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner. Remember, those are the ones we actually stop hanging out with. Why would we stop hanging out with guys like this or girls like this? Because that attitude's contagious. And there's a part of us that loves the idea of not being able to do anything. And we think for a moment we can adopt that reasonable excuse, which is neither reasonable nor an excuse for us doing nothing. And he goes, I don't want you around someone like that, that basically says, don't you go about God's business. Just hang out here with us and do nothing. It isn't like they're not doing anything. They're just not doing anything that's worthwhile. For we hear that there are some who walk among you in a disorderly manner, not working at all, but are busybodies. 
Now, those who are such, we command and exhort through our Lord Jesus Christ that they work in quietness and eat their own bread. Now, if they're not eating their own bread, you know what they are, right? The term we have in America is they're a mooch. Do you use that term here? Do you use the term mooch? That's always the guy that's happy to go out to eat as long as he's sure you're paying the bill. What would you call such a person here? Do you have a term for that? See a grasser? Freeloader. It's kind of the idea. You know? And well, and he goes, look at. Well, there's a lot of reasons why you don't want to hang out with someone like that. First of all, because they're really expensive after a while. You know? Sooner, sooner later, and I love, I love to be able to treat people, but I, and I'm learning these days, I'm starting to wonder who treats the other more, if that makes sense. You know, there are times where it's just like, hey man, that's, that's more than happy to do that. But you kind of know sooner or later when like, wow, that guy really only shows up when he's pretty confident he's not going to have to pay the bill. And he goes, look it, I don't want you with somebody that's just mooching off of or freeloading off of everyone else, calling yourself a Christian, could you imagine what kind of witness that is to the rest of the world? He goes, but on the other side of that, the Lord is coming back and I want you to do that which impacts the world. Hey, the crazy part, you're actually really busy. You're just not really busy with anything good. And the worst part is, you're so busy, you don't have time for anything important because you're busy with unimportant things. That's like going, you don't understand, this week I have a Star Wars marathon, a Lord of the Rings marathon, a, you know, I'm sorry, Daniel. I mean, it's like, you know, and I'm only trying to pick out things that like, and a Marvel Universe marathon, because I'm just thinking of movies that are all like 25 hours long. And it's like, so I don't really have time for a quiet time. We don't have time to share the Lord with anyone, because, oh, if we're going to just be honest, I'm, I have a lot to do. And he's like, well, you're busy. But you're going to stand before God and he's going to be like, you didn't redeem any of that time. Because you know what you do with someone like that? Let them alone long enough for them to realize they should be about the Lord's business. But as for you, brothers, don't grow weary in doing good. Can I read that again? But as for you, brethren, do not grow weary in doing good. But as for you, brethren, don't grow weary in doing good. When you're with freeloaders, it's really easy to grow weary doing well, doing things that change the world. Because now you're not just trying to walk, but you're trying to walk while someone's actually, while someone's sitting on your foot like a kid, you know. And he goes, you know, the easiest way to do it is to kind of shake that person off a little bit and get back to the walk you call to. But if anyone does not obey our word in this epistle, note that person. Don't keep company with them, that he may be ashamed. Do you realize God actually does you shame? The purpose is, everything like this is to change behavior. Not just so you can point and laugh. Yet don't count him as an enemy. You're not writing him off as an enemy. Your hope is for him to be restored. That's the reason you're doing this. That's why you have to do that horrible thing where they're going to go, who do you think you are? I'm just trying to be obedient, and I can't be obedient if I actually hang out with you right now. That's, that's you know, I'm like, how can I say that I want you to be obedient when I'm being disobedient by hanging out with you? But admonish him as a brother. Now, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace always, in every way. The Lord be with you all.
The salutation of Paul with my own hand, which is a sign in every epistle, so I write. Likely, Paul dictated this letter, but at the end of it all, Paul has to write the end sign, if you will. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Especially because, remember he said, don't be led astray by things as if a letter had come from us. He goes, let me show you what a real letter from you looks like. I sign it myself. <laughs> so this is how we conclude it. If someone says, I don't believe in a tribulation, instead of arguing with them, I can just say, you will. <laughs> uh, I believe we're in the millennial reign. Really? Like Satan is locked up right now? He's chained? His chain is way too long if this is him being chained up right now. In the bottomless pit, he's climbed back up to the top. Really don't see that happening. And that's not going to happen until the Antichrist is revealed, setting himself up in the temple and declaring that he's the only thing that can be worshipped. Haven't seen that yet. Have you seen that yet? You'd think that would have wound up in our history books if that was the case. The end of the world would be something you'd tend to notice in your history book because we wouldn't be here to read it if the world had ended. So there is that that's coming. But I'm really thankful I don't have to be here. I'm going to actually get a really good seat for it somewhere else. And I am really glad to watch that running of the bulls not in front of a bull myself. I think that's just fine with me. So... As, that, as he concludes this, he's like, look it. Can we get back to the God of peace? For you, he's a God of peace. And he's going to give you rest. Those who are troubled, he's going to give rest. He's a God of peace for you. You've found peace in him. He is your comfort. You can't demand your life to be comfortable, but you can, you can cry out for him to be the comfort in this life. I warn you, you were called to suffer. But because through that, people are going to come to know him because they will see the depth of your commitment. There's the key. Now, people can argue over when he's coming back, but in the end of it all, now is good with me. Because once this, once the, the refraining or restraining order is taken off, which we get to be a part of, there'll be nothing stopping him. And the reason the church is for the most part benched or removed is really because they're really not stopping them now anyways. So he's like, let's remove those who really are and let the rest of them make up their own mind. Now, I want to pray for us in this. Because in the end of it all, First Thessalonians, about the rapture, for the most part. Second Thessalonians, about the day of the Lord. So we know the difference. Are there any questions before we pray? Okay. Note this, by the way. There's a group called the Temple Institute who has, which I know that Maureen has been to, Suzanne has been to, and they have every piece of furniture, even a, even a replacement ark, for the coming temple. They actually have them all. Everything's already built, except the proper the building proper. They're just waiting for someone to give them permission on how to do it. And you ask them, so how long do you think it will take you to build the temple? And the three people who have answered me in all of the years I've been there have all given the same answer. You want to guess what it is? Three, three and a half years. Yep, we think we can get this thing nailed down in about three and a half years. I'm like, that's really interesting. You didn't pick four or three or five, <laughs> but the very thing that scripture says. It makes sense to me. But when you see the blueprints, and I've had the privilege of seeing them, I'm like, there is something different between the last temple and this one. 
This one has electricity in it. Why? Well, so we could put TV cameras in it, satellite cameras. Why? Just in case the leader who allows this wants to make a declaration to the whole world. That's what he tells us. He goes, actually, it's the only time, according to this group, that the Antichrist, that's who we know him to be, who, where a world leader can stand by the Holy of Holies to make, and that is if he makes a statement of international importance. And that's where he's going to be to declare that he's the only thing worshipped. That is a statement of international importance, by the way. Because you can go, oh, here comes the end of the world. That's a pretty important statement. And God called it the abomination that causes desolation. And he goes, this is the one thing that is so horrible. Everything's going down now. And I just want to pray for us that we would make best use of our time between now and then, even if it be just tonight. All right. Lord, thank you so much for this time. Thank you, Lord, that we were able to walk through the entire book of First Thessalonians. And I want to thank you, Lord, for the privilege of being able to be in your word like this and the confidence that I know you're coming for us at the twinkling of an eye, Lord, that we will be changed. And we will be like you. And Lord, we thank you that though this world is getting crazy, it is not getting as crazy as it will. And when it does, Lord, I am thankful to be removed. I'm more than happy for that. So Lord, even we would cry out, Maranatha, come quickly, Lord. And you say, Lo, I am coming quickly and my reward is with me. And I'm thankful for that reward, that rest that you will give us. Oh, Lord, please, even now, come and take us. And Lord, we do pray for the salvation of those that we know around us that have yet to say yes to you. Lord, you know if they would say yes to you with a simple, with a simple choice or whether something as radical as a tribulation is what it would take for them to say yes. But God, we do pray they would say yes to you. And I thank you. Thank you for this beautiful book. In Jesus' name, amen.